It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is season two, Beneath the Helmet, first episode of season two. Big shout out to everyone who's uh, supporting this program, this podcast, our amazing guests, and our amazing listeners. Today, I get the chance to sit down with uh, an incredible human being, an incredible person who's an advocate and an ambassador for firefighter safety, well-being, recovery, mental health. I'm sitting down today and having a great conversation with brother Lionel Crowther. So Lionel Crowther from Winnipeg Fire. Uh, we talk about a, a whole variety of things, but one key element that we discuss and uh, kind of hone in on is the lessons and the experience and the life-changing events of 2007. So in 2007, uh, Lionel was responding to a structure fire, uh, very cold evening, lots of complications, but um, two firefighters perished in that event, Captain Lassard and Captain Nichols. And ironically, and, and I only recently just met Lionel, that I was at that funeral, uh, along with a colleague of mine, Travis Geddes, who's no longer with us due to uh, operational cancer as well. So when we attended that event, it was minus 30 something, uh, very, very cold, very surreal experience. But the conversation with Lionel definitely brought up some emotion for me for that event, because it definitely, it hit home for me. Uh, seeing two line of duty deaths, uh, just being part of something so much bigger than we are. Uh, the line of duty death service, the the whole procession marching through town uh, was one of my first line of duty deaths that I've attended. And it just, uh, it still to this day, I remember those, those events and that day very, very well. So Lionel Crowther is going to share his, his story, his story, his recovery, his hope, and how he's now sharing his his wisdom and lessons learned and the the kind of the challenges that he experienced going through such a horrendous experience for himself so uh, he's also a huge advocate for the burn survivors and he talks about how his uh, relationship with burn survivors and how that's impacted his life because he's a burn survivor himself so so very powerful episode uh, i hope you enjoy uh, the conversation that we have and the powerful content that he shares uh, with our listeners. So all the best to you. Have a great 2024 season two. Until next time, stay well. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I got a very special guest uh, coming in from Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, a good uh, brother from the fire service who truly is out there making a big difference uh, with mental health, and recovery from tragedy. So I want to welcome to the show, Lionel Crowther from Winnipeg Fire. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. And uh, yeah, I've enjoyed being able to listen to you in the last last few sessions you've had. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yes. I've had uh, two guests on, uh, both recommended you as a, as a prime guest to have. So looking forward to it. 
here. I, I love those guys and look up to them in many ways. So Good thank stuff. you. Good stuff. So Lionel, tell us a little bit about uh, kind of who you are and kind of what brought you to some of the things you're working on today. We'll dive into a little bit deeper each of those, but kind of give us a snapshot of your fire service career and how that ended up being where you are today. Yeah, you bet. Yep, uh, very fortunate uh, to be able to be introduced to the fire service early. Um, I I grew up in with an RCMP family. My dad was RCMP, so just that whole aspect of service really was just basically. I was born into it, and I I really loved my dad's job. But the only thing I didn't I didn't want to shoot people. Yeah. And so it changed my perspective. And then um, playing hockey, I worked with my dad's business after he retired uh, that he had, and and he got injured. Uh, on the job site one time and I didn't know what to do. So I started uh, looking at first responder and uh, looking at getting first aid, which introduced me into the local volunteer fire department. And I loved it. Everything about it. It was the team, um, like leaving hockey and all those different aspects of really looking for the next goal and, and even a career. I loved everything about it and found out you get paid to do this. So I loved it. So I, I started the deep diving into fire service volunteering in my community. I was on the ambulance there as well as, as a casual. So I, I got to see both aspects of it. And then I decided, yeah, let's go for it. And I went to the fire college and uh, finished that and, and then got on uh, with uh, professional firefighting in Winnipeg. So very fortunate, you know, so that was 25 years ago and, um, yeah, it just sort of evolved as every year, as you know, um, every part of that career seems to evolve into, I'm not that same guy anymore. And, and I'm really interested to see where I'm going to end up. Cause, um, even though this far service sees many different things, I, I find it, it can really make or break you and it based on your perspective. So I've been, I've been very fortunate. Like you said, those two people that recommended me, uh, Steve Freen and Duncan, um, I love them. Like, not afraid to say that because they not only saved my life, but changed it, you know, for for the better. And uh, so, and that's where I, I really got that from my dad too, where I started from this was that person that he was and, and the person his father was for him. Um, I really want to foster that and, and look and make them proud of me and uh, for the man that I've become, because I have two young men in my life, my, my sons, and I have a little girl. So... I really look for that mentorship and I really look out outward because uh, this person I am now wasn't built by me. It was built by a village of people in this community that we have. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I still get to be in it, you know, yeah. so. Beautiful. Yeah. Did you grow up in Winnipeg or where was that when you're, I imagine your dad probably traveled all over Canada. Is that in different detachments? Yeah. So he, he actually grew up on the East Coast in New Brunswick, right on the Bay of Chaleur, like right on the ocean. And of course, back then when he got in, they ship you as far away from your family as possible. So he went to depot in Regina. That's where he met my mom, my mom's family, moved there from Fernie and ended up Regina. They got together there. And then my dad ended up in detachments throughout Manitoba. So, uh, so it was really rural Manitoba there. I grew up, up, up in Gillum by Hudson Bay, uh, mostly Nipwa. That was most of my life, uh, as a young, young fella. And then I played hockey and sort of travel around. And then when I got injured, I, I moved out West. That's where I fell in love with the mountains and been trying to chase them and get back there ever since. So 
So then came back, went ahead uh, uh, and got my training here in Manitoba. Well, the mountains will welcome you with uh, open arms. So Yeah, it's a dream. Yeah, the only elevation we have here is landfill. So Exactly. Yeah. I see you, uh, I could be wrong, but I see you as a very multi-passionate uh, person. What are some of the things that light your fire on the on the job these days? Oh, it's things that drive my wife crazy. So, so I love, I really, um, after our incident, which I know we'll get into, I really deep dove into understanding and training and, and different aspects of the job that I really didn't know before. And um, that's what really inspired me. At first, I got into fire ground survival, like all those things that I wish I knew before our incident that I feel would have saved our two members that passed away and also alleviate some of the injuries that I got and, and just tactical considerations that fire ground survival through the IFF really did give me. And so thankfully I found that program online and it just spurred from there into education, being more knowledgeable, not just um, following, um, really understanding that you got to understand that job. Um, as an individual, no matter what seniority or, um, that's what that, the gift of this program has given me is perspective, um, from all around the job. Cause we train uh, the master instructors from all over North America. And there's a, that's a team of no ego, no bravado. It's just driven of, to make things better and, and to educate each other and take care of each other. It's a very tight crew that I'm part of, and I'm very proud and love those members. And, uh which again, drove me again into educating. Um, I got involved with UL and edu being educated by UL early after our incident about understanding this thing called glow path and black fire, all these things we never heard of before. Um, so now I'm very fortunate. I'm on the a training advisory board for UL. So a very, really unique uh, cadre of people from all across the fire service and uh, really trying to make it a more consistent fire service with language training. And the education side of research and development that U, UL is uh, really what world renowned for. Um, the other, other aspect was of the injury, uh, becoming a burn survivor. And so I'm on that with the, the IFF Burn Foundation. I'm one of the coordinators for Central Canada, which is the 13th district of the IFF and opens very different doors, you know, of self and of identity and all those things that we we do feel, but maybe don't talk about. So as a burn survivor, firefighter, I, I look at it in a different perspective and lens uh, because of that loss of identity and things that do happen during a burn, burn injury. And then especially coming back on the job as a burn survivor, um, I learned about peer support, which I'd never really heard of before, um, which really helped me in many different ways. And also understanding that the burn not just affects the person that was burnt. It's the family aspect, which I really love uh, about. And, and especially when it happens, when you follow an incident around North America or, or anywhere in the world, and you hear about those firefighters that are burnt injured, Joanna, my wife and I really seem to, um, really hold on to the family aspect of how are they doing? Like we hear about the firefighter, but who's taking care of the spouse, who's taking care of the kids, how's their mom and dad, like all those things. And that's what I, I think that's really changed our perspective as a family is of an understanding that the incident can happen, but what happens at home and not only of a burn, but also those calls that we absorb and take on like with our backpacks that many of our friends talk about. Um, that's what sort of where we are right now, you know, so 
even though our incident was over 16 years ago, um, I, I definitely can admit that I'm not that same young firefighter that started or even right at that inset there. That's been quite a journey. So I bet. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of hoping anyone's listening right now is not the same firefighter as when they joined. I'm hoping they've all grown since, right? Yeah. All have improved. So well, well, we're very lucky to have you in the fire service for sure. I, I know you went through tragedy, but you've made gold out of that tragedy in helping other people uh, either prevent it or um, recover in, a, in the best way they possibly can. So we're very lucky to have you in the fire service, Lionel. No, well, I appreciate it. I, uh, it's, it's, it's a real honor to be able to move forward, but also to watch how, how we portray that. Like I really try to honor Harold and tell our two firefighters and their families too, um, because it's not always easy talking about it with other people. Um, I try to educate in a way that will honor them and never uh, take away from what happened to those amazing people on that scene that night, how they tried to save us and save them. Uh, try to honor them too, not just the two members that passed away, but those people that braved that night and, and kept fighting and fighting and uh, tried, tried to make it better. And they, and they never, never got to see the aspect that we did um, because they, they never felt they needed the help because they wanted to, they wanted to give it to us. And that's what they kept saying. No, no, I'm okay. Help them, help them. And, uh, so I hope part of this is that the educating side of that. They, they can accept the help. It's, it's not just for those that are physically injured. It's what also what we see and what we carry. Right. So, so, so you mentioned the incident. Um, I think it's time to dig into 2007 and February 4th, uh, Captain Lassard and Nichols, um, I traveled across the country to go to that service uh, with a friend of mine who's actually passed on now as well from occupational cancer. And what an experience that was. And hopefully I can hold back any emotion that doesn't flood out because, uh, uh, well, you were way more in depth there, but this was, it was a special moment for me to be there and represent and do what I could to, to be there. So, um, yeah, let's, let's dig into February, 2007. Oh, you bet. No, I appreciate the fact that you feel that emotion too. And I am very, I'm, I appreciate hearing those from firefighters that did attend, um, because I, um, I was able to be there at the memorial and that was probably the one, one of those days I truly still remember they made a possible room for me. So I'll get into that too, but, uh, so our, I'll explain our, our background for our department. We have a four platoon system and we work tens and fourteens. So two tens, two, two days, two nights. And um, that night actually was uh, an overtime shift for me. It was on a different shift. So that, I'm on two platoon and that was on three platoon, their final, their last night. And so, of course, as a young family back then, Joanna and I, I joined and just returned to work. So any overtime shift back then was like, it was like an anomaly. Like there was very little overtime and, and not like now. But I got the overtime. It's like, oh, perfect. It's a night. It was at my home station, number one. So I didn't have to go and get my gear. It was just drive downtown. And uh, so being at number one was always exciting. Like I'd been there three years at that point and uh, started driving. I was doing all the things in, in the downtown district. And uh, so when I got down there, like it was just a regular night, you know, but also I like people thinking about what are those nights like at the fire station, like Super Bowl, like it was Super Bowl Sunday. So it's all those exciting things. Guys are getting appetizers. We're doing our 
truck checks. Um, there's excitement to the hall because it's a Sunday night. Super Bowl is always a fun, fun night to work. And um, it felt like uh, you're part of the crew. You know, I'd worked the weekend before in a day change with the same crew. So I knew a lot of the members. And so I reported to the CAP's office and I say, hey, CAP, I'm here for overtime to Herald. And I always admired him. He was very, he was a quiet guy, but very proud uh, firefighter and a really neat guy to work with. Yeah. The lot of the crews would mention the years later and up to now, um, he, they loved working for him, and, but they just never wanted to let him down. So one of those people that you really looked up to and he didn't tell you about how great he was. He, he had that admiration from the crews, which that's one of the things I think that's, I admired over these years of learning more about Harold because he wasn't my captain. Uh, he was the captain on three pitches, right. um, but just neat, learning more about him was really unique and learning from his wife about what Harold was like as a father and husband. And, um, so he assigned me to engine 101, which is his engine. And normally when you're, I was a fire medic then, normally you'd run the squad. Like you're a fire medic, so you're going to be running man downs all night or personal people down. And that was the night in that night, it was like minus. Uh, 36 with, and then with the windshields minus 46. So one of those typical thir uh, February in Winnipeg, but it was cool. And so it's the coldest night on, on record of that year. So, you know, it was just, but that was our normal. So, but it was just expecting a case Sunday night, super cold, Super Bowl, mint, blending all those things together, you know, and then excited because I, I, hey, I'm not on the squad. I actually got to ride on the captain's rig, which is awesome because that, that machine gets to go first in, you know, so a lot of great experience, a lot of good people on the rig and the captain chooses his uh, crew. So I loved it. I was very excited about it. And I remember I, I called Joanna just before the call came in because I was excited to tell her, Hey, I'm on the engine, not the squad. You know, so I was actually, I remember those moments. Um, so then the call came in, it was our first call tonight for the engine. And he was in a second do second, uh, district across uh, the river from us. So it wasn't our first in. So I remember the driver of that night, Scotty, he, he went to the map and I said, Hey, I got you. I'll guide you in. Cause I used to drive in that district before I went to one. So we got in really, we got away really quick. So again, not much traffic, soup bowls on minus, minus 46 with the windshield. Uh, so we got away really quick. And the great thing about that night, I, I keep remembering is the work that people did that were on scene. Uh, the district chief that night, Bruce Duncan was en route to the call. He put in a working fire before he was on scene because he saw the signs out far away from it, but he got a working compliment coming early, which is always, it was such a benefit and probably saved a lot of us because of his work he did. So working compliment gets assigned. We're, I remember when that call came in, that was a working fire. We're going across the bridge, across the Red River into St. Boniface where the fire was. And that means the second or the third in engine is already assigned and now Another machine is assigned to red already. So that's huge for the working complement to get assigned so quick. So Bruce did an amazing job of what he had. Uh, so we're going in. I remember Scotty surging forward, like going faster now that the, we got a working fire. We know it's a working fire. And it's a very, very nice neighborhood. This was a municipal court judge back then. It was very, so very nice home, a cul-de-sac. Um, so we got in there really quick. I guided Scotty in and we were third in. So. Engine three was first in, they, they put in the like, terminology is quite different now, but he said, uh, they're going into fast attack and they were going to work on the garage. So it was an attached home with a working fire in the garage. So the next in was, uh, captain Tom Nichols with engine two, 
And the first in though was Unique, uh, it was Captain Lassard's younger brother, Casey. So it was Casey Lassard was first on scene as the captain there for the working fire. Uh, so we're all working, everyone's doing their job, but I, one of the biggest things I learned later uh, from one of my mentors, Don Abbott, uh, from Project Mayday, Don really broke things down really well in the last few years where he had like 17,000 Maydays. And he was talking about that crew continuity. And I didn't see it back then because now as an officer, I really see that crew continuity and the need for a team. Um, we had so many day changes and overtime people. And what does that do to your, your crew, your team, your plan, your playbook that you have, right? And so I didn't really see it back then, but now understanding it through the training we've done and the officer training and, and as an officer now, I really value having that team and uh, that playbook before we arrive on scene. So a lot of almost every crew that was on scene there had an even overtime or a day change. Some form was different, not their normal crew. And that was the same for first in engine, engine three, engine two, as also in engine 101 and 103 who came in later as red had their full team, which I'll get into why that team was so effective. So everyone's doing their assigned tasks back then you would get your assignment basically based on your dispatch. Like uh, not now, uh, now it's based on arrival and instant commands priorities. But back then it was, okay, the first thing would be fire tech, second do would be looking for extension of primary search. We were next in, so we got the primary search due to the type of fire we had. So we knew we were gonna be primary search. We used to split crews or our cap and, and our senior guy that night. He, they went ahead and I waited for the driver to get his gear on. So we were split two and two for primary search. And it was a two-story home. So, and this was a cab over design with a working fire in the garage. So the crews were working on the garage door, um, which is a huge impact now looking at those fires as instant commander, especially for wind-driven events and all those factors that UL thankfully is educated as after 2007. The wind was coming from the Northeast, which should basically taking it right into the, the alpha side of the house. So it's a huge factor, which I know we understand. Uh, they're working on the garage door or not. And back then we didn't do early water like we do now, like a fast water or wa uh, a line on there right away. They were trying to get the big garage door down and trying to get access. There was two cars fully involved and all the stuff that's stored in there. And uh, so engine two was tasked mostly face-to-face. -face. Most of the stuff that was happening on scene at night due to how we normally did things was face-to-face, -face. you know, cause we, back then we had just gotten these new radios and everybody had one, but before that, just months earlier, it was just maybe two per rig. And most of the things were always uh, just face-to-face. -face. So that was happening there still, cause we hadn't been trained on the new radios yet, or even especially what that orange button was for. Um, so we just were doing the things face-to-face. -face. So engine two was tasked. Um, with their crew to go do look for extension to the second floor, see if fire is extended above the garage with a hose line. So they went in with a crew of three and one of the members stayed outside to assist with water supply. Then we were coming in right after um, my cap and the senior guy, they were going in with their a search crew going to the left. Now they just, like I said, face to face. As we were coming up with Scotty and I, my partner, we actually stopped um, as we're walking up. We did a buddy check. Quick, and both of us challenge ourselves and talk about it up to today about why did we do that? You know, like usually you're running in as quick as you can, trying to get in there, fight the fire, doing all these different tasks. But we actually stopped. We did the buddy check. I pulled the tarp down from my helmet, covered my ears. I normally didn't, 
And then I did the extra flap around my neck and Scott, my partner did the same thing. So huge aspect of probably 10 seconds of a buddy check, probably literally saved our lives. Uh, then we're flake in line, we're, we're assisting. Then we were tasked to go to the second floor doing primary to the right. And we go off the hose line for primary search back then. So as we're going in, the house um, was very, like I said, very nice home. Now we're going in, we didn't have to force entry. We're going in the front door or helping hose for engine two going to the second floor. And as we're going up the stairs, I remember I could see in the house, no problem in the first floor. There's a light haze of smoke, but no heat, no signs of fire. And as we're going up the stairs, we pass our senior guy. He stayed about halfway up the stairs. He was just humping hose while the cap went ahead and started the primary to the left. Uh, we passed him along the wall and both my partner and I both said, man, that's getting hot. We could feel the heat literally off that wall, which separated the house from the garage. Then we, as we got to the second floor, we noticed the smoke was a little heavier, but not thick. Like it wasn't like a dark smoke. It was just a light smoke, like a haze in the inside there. Of course, the kids were home. The parents were actually away in a Caribbean cruise um, and the kids were home alone. I then found out later that the house had just undergone a major renovation, creating that master ensuite above the garage, separating one of the rooms um, into this giant master and taking away a bedroom and making it into a giant walk-in closet. So a lot of renovations and all new triple pane windows with gas. So huge renovations that, of course, we never pre-plan or know about. It's just being second due to a different district. Uh, so those renovations are all brand new, brand new. Everything was just painted up and just the kids, uh, teenagers were home. Uh, we later found out that uh, the one of the kids had gone to a movie and wasn't home and the other was home alone. And two and a half, two hours earlier was smoking in the garage with a buddy. Then they went back through the house, put their ashes out in the garage and looked in the garbage, went to back in the house, down into the basement, then two hours later, when our call came in, found they had a, a working fire in the garage. Called 911 and we're over at the neighbors, two, or, two doors down, which we never did get that report. So all those factors huge for after, after effect. But of course, on scene, we didn't know all those different things, especially burnt in, you know, and the renovation and lack of drywall in the attic separating the main uh, renovation rights. So all those factors were huge after. Uh, so Scotty and I, like I said, uh, the one hose team went to the left. They're looking um, for extension, looking if the fire to extend inside. They are seeing nothing. They're not seeing any heat. They're not seeing any fire, light smoke like we had. My uh, cap, like I said, went to the left. Scotty and I, we went to the right. Uh, we go down and we remember seeing like, a, it was like a glass railing, pretty, very modern back then. Um, and it was a glass wall, like a four foot wall on, up on the second floor. We could feel the difference from the wall, the drywall. So we knew we had a glass railing, glass wall. We started doing our primary search, ended up in one of the bedrooms up on the alpha side and uh, we're doing our search. You know, so all those things outside were happening as normal, water supplies being established. Um, RIT, RIT is now, um, they're arriving on scene. And the 13 engine is now helping with water supply. I remember uh, ladder two, the lieutenant on that one was assisting units in command to try to do the 360 because uh, Bruce was trying to get to 360, but there's so much snow, uh, locked gates, things like that. So he tasked the lieutenant from the ladder to go to the Charlie side to check and, and complete that 360, let him know what's going on back there. So all those things are happening at the same time. And uh, Captain Nichols uh, realized, hey, let's pull some ceiling here up in the bedroom, up on the master on over to the left. 
because they're not finding signs of fire. So he's going to pull some ceiling, see if it's extended up into the attic above him. So he sends one of the members down to go grab a pike pole. As they were doing that, Scotty and I are completing our primary. Uh, Scotty was going over, he found a window. It was like one of those dormer uh, windows with a low bench seat. So he called it out. I remember looking at the tick. I had the tick over at the door. And back then we weren't isolating. We weren't using like uh, research and development from UL because it wasn't really there yet. And so we would have those doors open still. So we're, I remember I was right in the doorway, checking the tick, looking for heat. I could sort of see Scott, but there's some light haze. I remember noticing some of the particulate and, and incomplete combustion, all the soot was starting to accumulate. So I remember wiping my tick screen a few times. I'm not realizing what that actually was. You know, I was a seven-year firefighter at that point, so I didn't really understand the science of that aspect. I could see Scotty, so I he, he actually would take his glove off and he'd check like this. He's about six, seven, so his arm's like eight feet long, so it's way up here. He, and, he, and, he, and he put his glove back and he had no heat. But then we noticed every time we got close, he got a feedback on his radio. So he said he, and he had a problem with it the night before. They had numerous fires on their shift. And so he said, hey, I'm having trouble with the radio. I'm going to turn it off. Let me know what's going on. You know, on those little, those little notes um, that now Don Abbott really does talk about in Project May about those trigger statements about these incidents, like all of a sudden what's changing, right? So I wish I had those trigger statements back then. Um, but so Scotty turned off. So the other member that was out getting a pike pole, all those factors, the lieutenants on the Charlie side, and then one of the members that was on the nozzle on engine two, they broke out a window over on the master. And I was on the Charlie side, up second floor. Uh, then I remember Captain Nichols was on the radio and he said, hey, uh, we just took out a window. We're going to get PPV started at the front door. Let's, we're going to clear some of the smoke. And at the same time, that crew was still working on the garage door. I remember the K-12 was cutting down the door. And then the door had just come down at that point. Bruce Duncan, who was the district chief, and you'd see, he saw this big plume of smoke. He said, come out and suck back in just like that, right at that point. And that's where he said, negative ventilation. I want you guys to evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. You know? And that was a point I was like, what's going on? Like my inside didn't match his outside, right? So plus his experience he had. So I called a Scotty. I say, hey, Scotty, they're calling. So no urgency. I could still see him. And then on the other side, the nozzleman, he was pulling line out of the bedroom right at that point where he heard evacuate, evacuate. He jumps down the stairs and he starts going down the stairs. Tom was over in the bedroom trying to get the hose away from the bed frame. You know, so he's over there. That's where Tom was last seen. Our senior guy was on the staircase still and trying to hump hose up helping engine two with extension. So all those people are still there. But our, the guy that went out the pipe pool, he was outside. He saw the drastic change. And he started running for the front door to try to help us get out. Um, just as that happened, Scotty was coming towards me. And all of a sudden, it was like a window shade drop on us, which is called a black fire event. So that's a thick, black, turbulent, hot smoke. Like seconds earlier, Scotty had a bare hand. And now that heat, you you've literally could feel your nail beds uh, tingling. That's how hot it got. It's so quick. So it dropped on us. Scotty actually ran right into me. We couldn't see each other. That's how thick it was. So he said, hey, quick plan. Hey, I'll do 180. I'm in the lead. So we were going in on the right. We go out on the left. Simple. We're only 14 feet away from the staircase. We'll go down and get out and see what's going on. 
So no, like it was urgent, but we knew, okay, we're getting out, but like, we didn't know the whole piece of the pie. So we're going out, um, the other member that he dove down and unknowingly he ended up knocking one of the members that was our senior guy on the staircase. So he rolls down and the senior guy is still on the stairs and the other member gets down the bottom. Now it's blacked out. Can't see it's hot. He doesn't have a hose line. So he gets disoriented. He shoots across straight across instead of taking that right. He's about maybe six to eight feet from the door. He ends up in the living room. That same member that was coming from the bike bowl, he was at the front door and he was screaming up to us to get out, to get out. Then he makes his way to the staircase, put three steps up and he's screaming up to us, exit here, exit here. He's trying to help us get out. And now I'm in the lead. Scotty flanks out on my side. Now we're, we're going towards the staircase. And uh, I find the four by four post and the step to go down. And I say, he got it, Scotty, I got the stairs. And uh, just as we got there, that's when everything lit up on us. It, it flashed. Um, very, very, very hot, very fat. Everything around us was fire, basically. All that thick black turbulent smoke they called black fire, basically was like we were swimming in gasoline. And it lit up. And the one thing I think that really saved Scotty and I was that four-foot glass wall. Like we were in the flow path for a second, then we were able to duck back. And thankfully that, but all you could hear basically was screaming at that point because we couldn't see. And then all of a sudden everything's orange. What it looked like initially and what we thought for the first couple of weeks was we thought the wall breached, you know, that wall we felt heat from. We thought it would burn through and, and the wall basically gave way. Um, but then we found out later from the investigators that when the kids went out, they, the door from the garage to the kitchen area and that back hallway didn't latch. And so when the investigators were doing that quite in-depth investigation, they found the, gra the garage man door, the very back, bent in half inside the kitchen. So it had blown out, uh, but it wasn't latched. So they had found that. And they found the swirl marks from that area that directed BC and had created a flow path up to that broken window. So that's what came up at us. Um, so it makes sense now, but definitely back then, it really, we had no idea where that fire came from, uh, but everything was on fire around us and uh, the heat was on, on little. I had never felt anything like that before and my partner as well. Uh, so thankfully, uh, we were to make a plan. Hey, let's get back. We got a window, got a window. And we were trying to get back to our bedroom that we had just searched. And, uh, so Scotty, you remembers letting go of my coat. He was hanging on to my back and then he remembers letting go and he does a 180 B lines it. He had orientation. He knew where to go. And then I go to turn and all of a sudden, boom, I got hit back. I got, went flying back down the hallway and ended up in a bathroom. I thought initially for weeks, it was a closet because I had no idea of that part of the house because I hadn't been there yet. Uh, but I had no idea what happened. I got blindsided. Somebody hit me and thrusted me eight feet down the hallway. I was flat on my back, very disoriented. Scotty, my partner, didn't know I was separated and remembers hearing a sound he said we didn't know what what it was because there's a lot of sounds at that moment the heat was intensifying pretty bad uh the pain was starting to take over um, scotty remembers getting into that bedroom at the same time i get up not like where the heck am i i go to my tick i i couldn't see i didn't realize that all that black fire event happened all the soot had baked on us baked on our gear baked on our face piece now i i was blacked out um, i'm not sure it was my gloves or my sleeve must have wiped my face piece and I could see my tick. It was whited out. 
So I uh, dropped it. It was tethered to my side. So I went back to what I was doing and it was right-hand search. And I go out there, feels very different. And I didn't realize until later, until I saw the layout of the house, I was on the opposite wall now, going in a different direction. So going out and I find a, a firefighter laying in the, in the hallway and like set of boots and a firefighter. So I'm, I'm screaming, we got to go, we got to go. I'm thinking it's Scott, not realizing it was someone else. And I hear the voice and it was Harold, it was our cat. So I grab him and I say, cat, we got to go, we got to get a window. Because now you know, that tunnel vision was starting to happen, like get in the window. That's all I could really was thinking about because pain was starting to really take over. So I grabbed a cap and I was able to get him into the bedroom and, and ends up now we're in the back Charlie uh, Delta side bedroom on the second floor, not the Alpha Delta. So we're across the hall, not realizing. Scotty doesn't realize that we're in trouble in the back. He's in trouble as, as well, trying to find an exit. He gets to his, his window. I hit the back wall around the same time. I reach up to my right. I find the window. It's very fortunate. It was like a four foot window on the second floor, which felt like abnormal because uh, usually windows a little higher. But I'm like, I had relief. I said, Cap, I got the window. And I was like, good, we're okay. But not realizing I didn't close the door to our room. And at the same time, I hear someone screaming, got a window, got a window, breaking glass. And it was Scotty. So, because his radio is off. And one of the things a lot of people say uh, to us is, did anyone put in a mayday? And I said, no, not one of us. Uh, one of the factors for sure, uh, the uh, intensity of the heat and, and the fire, but also we didn't have maydays in our protocols. Not, not once in my career had I ever practiced a mayday, especially in this situation. Um, so we did tons of training, like the year, the summer before we did a company, like our department wide, amazing ritual of showing from the Phoenix study that it takes 12 hours to save one. So amazing uh, experience, uh, amazing awareness we were given, but we were never a downed firefighter. Uh, we didn't even have mayday in our protocols, our SOPs, nothing. So, and especially what is that orange bond for? We never did train on those at the time. So of course I try to explain to firefighters, it doesn't magically come to you at that moment, unless you ingrain it. So that's basically why no maydays were happening because we did not train on maydays. We were always the rescuers. And I think that's a huge culture shift now across the fire service of understanding the mayday. You know? yeah. um, so we're at the window. I start breaking it out. It caps right on my left side. He's on his knees right beside me on my left side. I start breaking the window out. Unfortunately, when I got knocked down the hallway, my axe was dislodged and I lost my axe, but I felt fine. Like I was a young man then, you know, you're 32 years old and I was busting out a window. I, I felt fine. Like, Kate, hey, we're going to get this. And then I started punching those triple pane windows. And that is not as easy as you think. And it felt like concrete. Of course, everything's like I was going into fight or flight response. Everything's shunting. Hands are starting. I can't feel them as well. But I'm punching as hard as I can. And then I remember Scotty, that's when he probably uh, broke out his window. He dove head first. That's how bad things were getting, thinking he was going to go down two stories. But thankfully, he landed on the porch roof, the front porch. So he fell about two feet into the snow, caught himself on the rain gutter, didn't fall right over because he was blacked out too. Couldn't see. But thankfully, um, there was a ladder on the side that he was able to get access and they helped him down. I'm punching that window. 
And I remember my right hand went through first and I just kept clearing the window. But by the time I pulled it back, I cleared the window and I couldn't feel my hands or arms. And that extreme heat happened, like literally, it felt like I I just broken a window into where the fire was. I'm not understanding flow path because flow path wasn't a term until like when Dan Manjikowski got into the Cherry Lane fire in D.C., Washington, D.C. So, and that's after this event. Um, so all of a sudden I said, cap, cap, we got the window, got the window. And then all of a sudden I heard this, like this jet engine sound. It was this big whoosh. And that's where it vented all through us uh, with that open window now, because I had just created a, an exit for that vent. And not only that, from the, all that energy that was up on the second floor, Scotty's window is now open. That's where the wind was coming directly through. So almost like a combination of pressure and a wind event all at the same time. So um, we were both screaming for help. Like that initial flash was very hot and, and extreme, but this was a very different turbulent event. And unfortunately, my left side, I suffered a lot of uh, heat and burn on my left side. Uh, so I had the window and then trying, I got the cap. I said, cap, we got to go, we got to go. And he kept saying, it's too high, it's too high. And that's where we heard Rit. Um, thankfully, Bruce, uh, when, when uh, Scotty went down, he uh, went to Bruce and said, where is everybody? Scotty was thinking, okay, they, I jumped out, but where are the other guys, right? He's thinking we actually went to the stairs. And Bruce says, what are you talking about? Bruce had no idea. Like I said, we weren't using those radios. Uh, Bruce had no idea that we were in trouble. So Scott explained what happened. Bruce right away put in uh, for Rit, which was 103. The guys sitting with us in the kitchen, they're now on scene for us. And this is one of those crews where if you're in trouble, who do you want coming for you? And this was the group. Like um, this lieutenant, he was acting lieutenant at that time. He just retired as my platoon chief, Gordy Cannell. Just one of the amazing guys you'd want to work for. Uh, he's a into the pipe band, he's all like everything you want, uh, just to, uh, but also a good man. And uh, he had that crew with Spike, this guy's just like a rock star, big, huge senior guy, Patty LaRoche and uh, Robbie McDonald. Those guys were coming in and uh, they're coming in with an inch and three quarter line. They had a tick, they're coming in fast. They get to the front door with an inch and three quarter line. I can hear on the radio, they're coming. I'm like, so me and Harold start screaming, we're up here, we're up here. And uh, they get the front door, they can't even get access. Like they're blowing, like with this in street for land, they can't even get in the front door. So Gordy does an amazing can report, like a kit conditions, actions, needs. And uh, a member from the third in engine grabs a two and a half and they're plowing and trying to knock down fire for them to make access. So amazing what those crews were doing to try to get us. A scene outside, um, neighbors have pictures that we were given. Um, unbelievable what they were doing to risking to come for us. It was unbelievable. The garage is starting to collapse. Ensuite now is collapsing, but it didn't affect the stairwell, thankfully. Uh, the jet tub is now on the Audi in the garage. And uh, so they're coming in hot. They're coming in fast. We're screaming for them. Um, I grab the cap and I try to get into the window, but I don't understand all that heat, all that energy that our gears protect us from, I compacted now when I grabbed them. So all that heat and energy went in my hands, my arms, and my abdomen. When I went to grab them, I compacted, and that's where that heat started to burn us. And me and Harold as well. So I go back, like it's quite painful, and I, I'm not thinking about the energy. I'm not thinking about the turnout gear, all the things about it that I've learned now. 
I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. I've done this before. Like I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. I got to do this. And so I grab him again. I try to pull him towards the uh, window. And that's when we actually, we fall to the floor. Like, uh, we go down and, uh, all that heat and energy is just transferring to our skin and we're, we're in trouble. Um, I was able to get up to my knees and I got held up on his knees and, and was pushing him out the window that way. But, uh, the members that were out in the back, like the Lieutenant, he saw it vent. He saw the window when I broke it out, he heard the broken glass, called the more people to come back and help all on, uh, verbally. He's just screaming to crews, come back for coming out the back. And, uh, it's two members there on overtime for my shift had a extension ladder on the Bravo side and they were trying to pull it and, and get it to us in the back. And everyone usually brings up the Swiss cheese model of all these occurrences, how everything sort of lines up for all this failure and, and what happens. And that's one of those, another factor, not just radios, not just crew continuity, but the equipment that night was, like I said, minus 46. Um, as they went to pull down the ladder to pull it down over to us, the halyard and the, the dogs on the ladder jammed and then the halyard broke. So all those little factors, they had to dump that 28 foot ladder extended and try to get it to the back to us. So the three of them are trying and going through like three, four feet of snow, trying to get to us. Um, they're screaming to us. I remember hearing to jump, to jump. So I, uh, I'm pushing Harold out the window and they said they could see the arm out, but they only saw one. So we were supposed to, cause Harold was stuck. I couldn't push him out that window. Um, so they think maybe his arm was jammed up underneath and he was a little bigger guy than me. So I couldn't fit him through. So he pushed aside. He said, you go, you go. And he got me at the window. And the summer before we're doing that rich training, we did low and reduced profile. And it, that's what training did. It, it gave me the muscle memory of knowing the space. Like it literally felt like that really like with the, everything I was happening with the panic and the, the blackout and not being able to see, but you can hear crackling all around you. It literally felt like we were standing in fire. Uh, so I, I did the profile. I did my arm out the, the side. I felt my tank go up in the void space and I shot right through the window and, um, uh, the crews were right below. So thankfully I missed them. I landed on the deck, um, uh, right below one of the, or right almost on one of the members lead and they heard the bang of me landing, but they couldn't see cause smoke was billowing out of that room. And I always thought they had picked me up and, and got me going, but they said they went to find me and I was gone. So I was over about five feet away. I jumped in the snow. So I don't remember that part as much, but they, they were taking my stuff off. My helmet smashed and melted against this one side of my face, that left side, like I said, got hurt pretty bad. Uh, my helmet light was all melted down my face piece. And, uh, then they took my stuff and realized it was me. Like I'm a two shifter. We're like them there on all of us run over to me. And so the other member of this one guy that was there, another Scott, he was able to clamber up, up onto the sunroom roof and was pulling Harold out the window, trying to get him out. And he was stuck. So he's pulling him, trying to get him out. So Harold was still talking to him, tell him, and they were talking back and forth. And then they were able to get that ladder up. So the ladder two driver, uh, Ray, he went up there to help this other Scott and was pulling there, trying to pull Harold out, but he was stuck. Something on his SBA through the, uh, the window just wasn't fitting. So they had to put Harold back in and Ray dove through the window doing a profile and, uh, was trying to pick up Harold and lift him out. That's where Harold collapsed, but he was still, still breathing at that point. And, uh, at that point, Ray was screaming for help. Cause he said, when Ray and I talked about it, 
He said he described the cap like a, a sandbag, trying to lift a sandbag. You know, every every time he moves, it would transfer, and he, he just couldn't get a grip on him. So he called for help, and one of the members on that two and a half uh, came in and tried to help him. And at that time, that's where Rit was coming in to get us. Um, they all of a sudden realized they're coming up the stairs to the second floor, four members missing. They realized they were on top of somebody, and they realized, hey, that was our senior guy. They, and they grabbed him, and that's the last, like, there's no other transmissions from Rit. So we could hear all that going on. But all of a sudden, then Rick was engaged, the four members who were carrying our senior guy down and trying to get him out because he was almost unconscious because he was caught right in that flow path. Like when he was there on that staircase, that flow path got him and he was conscious to semi-unconscious at that point. So they grabbed him really quick and they were carrying him out. And that's the same time I'm walking around the house. Um, I come around and I'm actually feeling fine. Of course, I'm in shock. But I feel fine. Like it's cold out. I, I don't feel that heat. Like it was just amazing the difference from that fight or flight feeling inside to when I landed on, I didn't feel any pain at, and now. And so Lee walked me around. She walked me around. Then she went back to help try to get Harold out the window. And I was standing on the driveway of the next house. And I saw Bruce, the commander. He goes, Brute. And he goes, Lionel, are you okay? I say, yeah, I feel fine. And then my partner, Scotty, sees me, runs over, gives him a big hug. That's when I started feeling my ribs a bit. They're uh, starting to get sore. Uh, but Bruce says, go get him checked out. Take him to the ambulance at the end of the cul-de-sac. So Scotty said, I got him. I got him. And we're walking down. Like we're saying, holy man, what happened? Like Scotty said, I thought you got out. And I said, what happened to you? And we're just talking as we're going. And the other crews are now all trying to help Harold out the back window. So I get to the ambulance and, he, and, and they pass me off. And Scotty goes, you're good. And he takes off and he goes to help. Uh, so he's gearing up, trying to get back and help what's going on on scene there. Um, the medics were actually from one station as well. And I knew them, like I knew them uh, quite well. And uh, then a medical supervisor showed up and he said, hey, I'll check you out, Lionel. He knew me. He also knew my brother-in-law was a volunteer firefighter with him outside the city. So I knew him well. And he, he takes my gloves off. And that's where I found I was burnt. I, I felt it nothing at that point, but uh, all of a sudden when I saw it, all of a sudden the pain, like my hands were degloved to my wrists and then the finger, my fingers were black. And I was like, oh, everything changed. Like, uh, it was like, I saw the pain and then I felt it, but they took me in right away. Um, of course I said it was minus four or six. They took me in the ambulance. I remember the heat was just blowing and it felt like a hairdryer hitting your face. Um, and then they laid me down because I, I, but I still had all my gear on. But as soon as they laid me down, all that heat and energy, like I was outside for probably four minutes, but all that heat and energy was still in my gear. And when I laid down, all that heat compacted and onto my fresh skin. And it, I was begging for help because it literally felt like I was back in the house. That's how hot it felt, you know? So I'm begging for help. And they're, they're paramedic trained. They're not fire trained. So they were trying to get my gear off. And it was still, I was still hot too. So they're trying to get off and he just grabbed some shears and they're just cut, they cut everything off. So I'm laying there. One of the medics is really cute, blonde, of course. Uh, but it was like, I don't remember seeing what they did. I still saw myself as myself, but I didn't realize I was in such, I was in bad shape. Um, I ended up with a 70% burn through my uh, head right down to my, my calves, uh, first, second, and third. Of course, they saw that 
And then I'm, I'm begging for help. Um, they bring in another medic, uh, paramedic, uh, Dave Johnson comes in and he's trying to do a line. Um, he does a femoral cause my hand, my neck, everything, and everything, my arms are burnt. So he does a femoral. And then I'm starting to calm down. I remember seeing Dave was squeezing that bag above me, trying to get the pain meds in, like trying to help me. So I really, I really appreciate all the work that those crews did for us. And at the same time, all those crews are doing anything they could to try to help Harold. And then Bruce realized, okay, we're missing Tom, the cap from engine two. So he sends in the secondary, the second red team, rescue eight, a crew of four. Then my partner, Scotty, and another member, Sean Bell, they team up with them with a crew of six. Cause it's bad. Like the house is, is burning down. They're going in hot, trying to go save Tom, find Tom. So of course he was last seen in the master, which is over in the Bravo Charlie corner, second floor. So they're going up there. Um, the crew goes in the first crew of four, they scan with the tick and they, they scan and thankfully scan to the right. And they saw a firefighter boot and leg sticking out of the same bedroom we just came out of. So thankfully they did that. And the four of them go to the right. And then the two Scotty and Sean stayed at the top of the stairs to mark the exit to where they need to go to. Uh, so the crew gets to him, they find him unresponsive. He's actually on the other side of the bed from the window where Harold and I just exited. So the crews have pulled the two crew were able to lift Harold out, out that window and they're bringing them down the ladder. Uh, the platoon chief that called me in on overtime was actually on the base of the ladder trying to help as Bob Wright, trying to help them whatever he could do to save Harold. Uh, they'd worked together for over 30 some years. Um, and Bob kept saying, we got you, Harold, we got you, you know, and, but no sounds from Tom. There was no SCBA. There was nothing. He was massively, unfortunately, massively burnt. So the crews executed very quickly. I remember talking to some of the crews. They said they felt like they weren't doing enough. Like they had their hands on them, but they just felt like I have no weight. Who's carrying? Like they had six guys on Tom, getting them out as fast as they possibly could. So now they have both our caps outside. Um, but unfortunately, when, when they got Harold to the base of the ladder, that's when we stopped breathing. Well, they, they get him, they get his gear off in the back. They're doing mouth to mouth CPR. They're, they're taking him, carrying him to the front of the house, to the driveway. Tom, same thing. They're out there, the writ and the six members are, they're working on Tom, trying to get his, his, all his gear off, trying to, they're doing mouth to mouth CPR. Cause there's only a couple of medics on scene now. Cause it was, you know, we're in the far end of the city. So. All those things are happening. I'm in the ambulance now. I'm being sent away. Eddie, the senior guy, he's now in the ambulance. He's being sent to the burn center. The crews, crews are, are frantically trying to save Harold and Tom. Um, my partner, Scotty, he was doing mouth to mouth on Tom, trying to save him, get him to the ambulance. You know, all this happens in, in under, like it was nine and a half minutes that I hit the deck. Wow. And it's such a dynamic scene. And of to describe it, it takes so long, but it happens so fast, you know, and that's a very, a common occurrence when you hear these near misses or line of duties that all these firefighters, we always seem to say it happens so fast They're, and it, it did, you know, so, and then those crews that were on scene there turn around and they had to go start fighting that fire until relief crews were starting to come. And we had so many accounts from firemen and firefighters waiting in the station. And they were telling dispatch, dispatch, we're going to hell. And some of them were staged in their rig waiting to be di uh, dispatched. And then some crews didn't hear about it until the phone started reading, you know? So um, unbelievable um, 
how quickly our lives changed. What an incredible night that was. Mm. Yeah. And then my little wife, uh, she's at home, finally got these two little boys to bed. You know, my boys, Noah was four, Nathan was two, and we had just talked. You know, we had just talked on the phone. And then two minutes after that, we got that call. You know, and Joanna's finally relaxing. You know, what's like for a mom to have two little boys in bed, right, on a Sunday night. Um, she's just relaxing. And, but thankfully, when I was en route on the, in the ambulance, one of the medics, the supervisor, as he knew me, he said, I got to phone Joanna. I got to phone Joanna. I said, don't phone Joanna. I said, I didn't want her to get that phone call. Like, we didn't have any pre-planning. We didn't have a will yet. And I said, phone my mother-in-law. She was a nurse. I get her going. She doesn't understand what's going on. And I didn't want Joanna to get that phone call from someone she didn't know. So he actually helped me really well. And he said, okay, yeah, let's get your brother-in-law to come and drive her to the hospital so then your mother-in-law can stay and watch her boys. So a good plan. Even though I was high on fentanyl and all the other stuff they gave me, um, we, I really am glad that we had that plan. And I think I'm thankful for what he did for me and my family. That night. So Joanna had that assistance. And um, she still recalls that her mom never knocks, you know, and she knocked and Joanna got to the door and she's like, Hey, what's going on, mom? And she saw that look and she said, Lionel, Lionel's been burnt. You got to get to the hospital. So, and just, she remembers that feeling, that look and uh, those initial stages, those first hours and days and months we had um, in being introduced as uh, burn survivors, you know. Lionel, that's a, that's an incredible story. I, I kind of heard, you know, parts of it throughout the years, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Just shows you the power of the, the brother and sisterhood as well, right? The, yeah. how much it means to us to be in that environment. Right. To me, you, when you described that story in the incident, it seemed like most things went pretty well. Am I, am I wrong there? Or? Well, exactly. And, and that's, it went, it was bread and butter. It's just, it's just, I had to catch garage fire. And that's the biggest thing I hope people can take away from when they hear incidents like this, that there's no blatant cause to this. There's no um, direct cause that someone did something wrong. It's just the understanding that we had at the time, like back in the nineties and two thousands, we were using PPV attack and all these different things with positive pressure with fans. Was there much talk about isolation? There wasn't even the term flow path introduced until um, Dan Majikowski and, and Steve Kerber and UL and NIST started to come collaborate and saying, these are common occurrences. Something's happening here that we can, can we prevent it? And this is how we can do it. So um, there's no, there's no errors there, but there was such honor and, and drive and, and look what they did. Like I talked to a few of them for years after and um my gratitude for what they did like when you see those pictures of what they risked they risked it all for us and uh i'll never forget that yeah. i don't know how you're, how you're holding it all together at the moment but reliving uh, you that. know you, you know a duck yeah <laughs> you should see these feet moving yes underneath, yeah, right? but, yeah but it's to to tell the story not everyone can and that's what i've accepted um, about the job, our job, that not everyone can tell a story because it's taken to a different place. And so that incident, 
um, my wife and I really did grow a lot. And trauma doesn't build a marriage. It can devastate it. And thankfully, we had the tools after. We didn't have them before. Definitely didn't have them before. Um, we've been given tools by great people uh, that saved us, saved our marriage, saved life. Uh, so many things. Uh, gave me a, a drive or a perspective of where we are today. You know, so I really look at it as a lot of gratitude and love for so many people, you know, um, that gave me this gift of life. Like I look at Lynn Lassard, Harold's wife, of what she's given me too. She's involved in this as well. So much where my kids asked recently, my kids had asked what side of family was Lynn on? Like, is it the mom's side? Is it your side? Like we always call her Auntie Lynn. Um, I said, no, I said. Lynn, Lynn isn't our relations, but she's part of our family. And we talked about it. And I think that was one of the most amazing statements I'd, I'd heard in quite a while of, of what I, what I would want for my wife, you know, and, and the love we have for Lynn. But how did this impact your family in the, say the, the first year or something? Was it? What, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome? It was, uh, you know, if I could say one word, it was tragic uh, or preventable. We didn't have any game plan, you know, like who paid the bills? I paid the bills. Johnny didn't have my, the passwords, all those things. Of, it almost devastated our lives. It really did because we just didn't know how to respond. The initial injury, yeah, that was scary. And, and it was so devastating. Especially to think like I was then if I was going to have amputations, Joanna had to break the news to me that possibly losing some fingers. Who's taking care of the boys? You know the the money aspect. Of, we had no idea about how things work with workers' compensation or benefits. Um, it was such a overwhelming response right away. Uh, where my wife was coming in and she was not really used to seeing this the pain alone and the injury. Like she was not, she's a very queasy at the time. Like my boy, Noah would have a nosebleed and she'd faint from the sight of blood. You know, so now look what she's coming in on. I've seen this 70% burn and pain like you wouldn't believe. And, and the fear, the fear was probably the biggest factor. Yeah. Um, and then how to deal with it on a parent perspective as these little boys where they're just being developed into young little men and they're only four and two. And now they can't come see dad and they don't understand why. Like we didn't have a script. We didn't have a pre-plan for how do you prepare your family for this? We didn't know. And uh, we just, we, we were just going day to day, sometimes hour to hour. Uh, especially funny, you know, when um, I found out that um, I wasn't going to lose my fingers, huge. Because I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? Like I'm not going to be a fireman anymore. And it was devastating. Like many, many hours, Joy and I, we were just crying in that room. Uh, we didn't know what to do, but we had nonstop care, like not just from the burn center, like amazing burn surgeons and burn staff. Like that's a gift that they have of care and empathy and compassion, but the people of our job, um, they, they responded. They, they cared so much about us. They took care of my family. They took care of my shoveling at my house. They, they, our freezer was full of food. My boys had little surprises and gifts and Joanna had spa days. 
But in that hospital, it was, they were lying, lining the hallways, waiting to see us. And some of them never did come in. Some of them just were there. And, uh, there's a lot of healing that happened there at that hospital because there were, there were so many people suffering, you know, um, not just with their burn injuries, but having a double line of duty and losing people. We hadn't lost people in like 85 years and in, in a traumatic fire like this. And we didn't have anybody on the job anymore that went through those things. And how, now how do you respond? All these people in peer support that we had, like we had a CISM team and tremendous like mentors, like type of people, like a mate, like Johnny Penner and Walter Kluse and all these really great people that we look at as icons of our job. They were just sent out, okay, go take care of the crew. And what do you say, like, to those crews that just lost their captain or, or brother and, and then not having any clinicians back then? Like, we, mental health was a stigma. There's huge stigma in mental health back then, especially like you're weak. What did you expect, right? So we had, we had a huge, huge learning curve. Um, and we were thrust in it, like, by fire, you know, literally. Yeah. Family-wise... We didn't know what to do yet. So Joanna would, we would have our boys stay at my in-laws. They were taking care of our boys, you know? And so we were just trying to get through day by day. Like I said, Joanna was at my bedside 23 hours a day. She'd go home for that hour, see the boys shower, change, come back. Basically, she was just a hostess. Um, people coming in and out and taking care of me. That's what she did. Like she was really on my, like protecting me in many ways. The nurse practitioner, one of them, said, Hey, Lionel's, he needs his rest. Like, you know, like he, we got to stop this visitation. And she says, you are not stopping this station. He needs them just as much as they need him. Uh, so thankfully my wife stood up and stood up for me when I, I had no idea that was going on. You know, well, I, I'd fall asleep cause the Kent, the fentanyl and ketamine would hit me. And I, I hit this little button with my foot and, uh, I'd be out. And the guys would still be there and then they make fun of me. And it was just like I was part of the crew, you know? Yep. Sitting around when, the kitchen table. Yeah, exactly. And one minute I'd have three blankets on next, I had a face cloth on, you know, like my thermoregulation was gone. But Joanna and I were just scrambling, trying to figure it out. Cause like I said, we didn't have a guide or like a what to expect, what expecting type book. We didn't have that. And, uh, but what really distracted us was the constant friends and, and brothers and sisters coming in and guiding us to having some little nuggets of success and some failure, but thankfully at the beginning, we had more success than failure of my recovery. Um, the other member, Eddie, the other member was first cause his was more severe. Like he had amputations and, and a lot more burns. He was older. He was 53 at the time. I was only 32. So he went first and I was later in the week. Thankfully that was a, a good thing. Cause I, I, I had blood circulation happening. They realized that, okay, my fingers were not going to need to be amputated, which is huge relief. And I had two amazing uh, surgeons, uh, Dr. Ed Bouchel and uh, Ed Hayakawa, specialists in their field. Um, they were plastic surgeons, but they're also for the burn centers. So they did some amazing work for me. A lot of burn survivors talk about years and, and like 20, 30, 40 surgeries. I had one, uh, oh, I am so fortunate. Uh, all my skin they took that was still good on my legs. They took all my skin and grafted it to my hands, arms, and my abdomen. And it, it was hundred percent take. 
Um, so fortunate, I had about 800 staples in my body. Just like I couldn't go through many x-rays for a while. But so all that skin took, which was huge. And um, of course, being new to the burn world, I was like, okay, I'm going to be back. Be able to get my life back. And Joanna, I remember Joanna and I kept saying, I can't wait till we get back to the world. I can't wait till we get home. Just get back to this, where we were before, right? And we didn't realize it, that we never would. You know, that now my, not only my brain, Joanna's brain is different. Like we were seeing the world, a very different perspective. The fight or flight response really did change us. And, um, and what it did to our little boys, Nathan was too. So he didn't really pick up on this till much later, which I'll get into. And, but Noah was four. And what it did to that little boy was devastating. You know, as a dad, you know, um, try to keep him, protect him. And then this call came home to my little boy and affected him. That was, that was devastating for quite a while. Um, he couldn't sleep alone anymore. Couldn't go to the basement and play with his toys. Um, all those little factors of anxiety that of fear was introduced. These little boys that didn't have it, now they had fear. And it was devastating as a dad. And then as a wife, my wife now, she she's actually became my caregiver, not my wife for some time. And we didn't realize realize what was happening to our roles as as a husband and wife was now a burn survivor and nurse, you know, because it just happened, you know, and, and we didn't really know those, these terms that we do now about the caregiver and the, the survivor. And um, thankfully, we were introduced a little later um, to a trauma specialist, Dr. Bill Davis. And Dr. Davis had actually was from Winnipeg, but he was involved with huge incidents like the Oklahoma bombings and also 9-11. So he was directly uh, working with the FDNY for a year. He lived there for a year, helping the FDNY after 9-11. So he knew the culture. He had the terminology. He understood the strategy. He had all those things. And then it was such a seamless transition for us because we, we, a few of us went with Ed, but he was really struggling. Like Eddie, um, a couple months, two months after he got out, but just, we all went and we said, hey, let's support him. And by the time we left that, it, first uh, meeting and that first session, we all had appointments. But Dr. Davis, one of the parts of it was that our spouses were going to be involved. So he already had this thought process of where we're going to go with it. And he knew the needs and that it wasn't just us as firefighters. Uh, it was also the people that support us behind the scenes or at home and how these things are views and how they affect them as well. So having that initially, uh, was groundbreaking for us and, and probably saved our marriage because we didn't realize that we were separating and that separation from caregiver to um, spouse, we didn't realize was happening until he introduced of what we were doing and why, you know, he did the learning or the learning to listen game with us, which isn't as much fun. How to listen to your spouse and then you're supposed to repeat back what you thought they were saying. You're like, yeah, it's not as much fun. So, but, um, Yes. But a good, uh, but another good man though, like we shared values, his faith, we shared, um, all these things that he really specialized into, um, the individual couples that were involved with this treatment that he was doing. And, um, it changed my head, you know, but unfortunately we only had so many sessions and then it, oh, Hey, you're doing good. You're going to, I, my recovery was doing well. My physio, uh, we're really doing well. Um, when I got the return back to work, it's like clean slate. Okay. Everything stops. 
right? And that's what one of the problems that we saw was, yeah, I'm going back to work. And there was no plan he, again. So going back to work as a burn survivor firefighter, had all this great treatment of physical and mental understanding this, why am I feeling this way? Because once I got a little bit better, the focus of the physical started draining away and guess what crapped in was the, the mental and that survivor guilt and the loss of never, like one of the biggest things I loved of being on the rescue or that type of training was writ. Like you're going to go like they did for us, save and go save your firefighter. That's your, the biggest job I think we have in the fire service is saving one of our own. And I failed. And uh, that feeling was every day. So I thought my pro thought process was use it as incentive, use it as drive, use it that now I'm going to get bigger, stronger, faster, not fail. Like I'm going to save Harold. You know, that space, he was the drive. So and I'd go to the gym during my treatments or physio. I would literally pass out, um, at the effort. And then I got a trainer that would go to my gym after instead of the rehab hospital. And I would basically be fat, passing out, um, not realizing that because of my blood supply, they didn't give me a transfusion. So I was only about half full for a while there. So I would be driving so hard and I, I'd find myself on the floor, not realizing that it was, I was literally putting, trying to put myself back in that situation so I wouldn't fail again. And that was my drive before. So it was failure. Um, drive as far as you can and push a little bit more. Thinking that was a positive, but it really, I was killing myself. How long and, was that uh, transition of recovery? Was that months, years? What was yeah, that time so, frame? Um, at the beginning, first to get back to work was those months from February. And I got back at the end of November into That's December. No. Yeah. And to look back at it, I should have waited. I wish I, but the incentive was get back, get back, get back before the anniversary, get back. They don't give up. Don't give up. Right. And not realizing that I need, still needed some work done. And then when the back to work came and, and I had to up my game even more now for the physical, I'd go to work all day and then go right to the gym because I couldn't get that really good workout that satisfied that need. So I was exhausted, um, literally hardly sleeping because all I was saying, okay, tomorrow gotta get ready, gotta get ready. If it happens, that's what I got to do and not being trained yet. Right. So thankfully I had a, a really great captain at my station at number one on my shift, uh, Brad Harless, amazing guy, great captain. Um, he arranged with management and the union that I would be the fifth member on his engine back at number one, cause I, I refused to go to this other station cause I wanted to be with my crew and the crew supported us so much. I wanted to go back and they supported me coming back. And one of the members that was there, he was on scene. He was driving engine 101 now. Like he's there with me. So I really wanted to be there. And they did so much for us. I really wanted to come back. So work with them. The cap would know when to push me forward, when to pull me back. So it was, it was great, but um, I wasn't able to tell them how I felt. I, I, I didn't want to let them down. Plus, I didn't want something else to go wrong, you know. So I just kept that and, and I felt injuries because my training, my physical training was really uh, taxing. I had like rotator cuff injuries. I thought it was a rotator cuff ends up. I had a scapular nerve injury basically from the fall, but never did get uh, covered. So, cause it was a, like a year later. 
Uh, so just pushing, pushing, pushing and realizing it's not working. Like I was really pushing hard uh, physically and mentally. The after effects were really coming home of like, I was very sharp. Like everything was basically about work. Um, the family aspect was being, being put second. And uh, I didn't, we didn't like it. And we both noticed that we needed some more help. So we actually went to the departments and we need help. Um, we want, we need Dr. Davis again. Can we get help? Cause it was basically hundreds of dollars an hour to see him. And we just, we were a young family. We couldn't afford it. Um, thankfully the department helped us. Uh, they agreed that this should be covered. And it was, uh, that our new chief, he was part of that. It was Christian Schmidt that really did help us with that. So thankfully he listened to us and helped us get that additional help from Dr. Davis of understanding. And he put it really interestingly to Joanna. He said, you made it through the fire. You have to remember you made it through the fire. Now you have to survive survival. So it was really huge impact there and sort of transitioned us into the way of thinking. Cause then we had to really deep dive into how we were reacting to the incident, still letting that incident still sort of drive us and, and control us. And we had to sort of get back where we had to start taking care of our, our future, not letting that incident dictate it. That's where Dr. Davis really, really gave us that perspective understanding because yeah. he dealt with so much, he dealt with it before. So we had the trust, which was huge, like to trust the therapist because we had one in between there that was horrible. Like basically just tell me how you feel, the type of thing. Oh my God, I don't know. How do you guide someone? And so it didn't go well. So thankfully Dr. Davis was, they reintroduced him, helped us for some time and where we really did feel comfortable. But unfortunately, it was a roller coaster ride for some time, like not just the months, first months and year. It was a couple of years of finding a path. Like I was still sort of searching for an identity because um, I it did feel like I lost it. Because when you look down at your body that you don't right, recognize anymore, is that the burns really do, really do change you. That really did. And thankfully, I was considered like a hidden burn. So I could cover up people and see my body of my burns. And that's one of the things Joanna remembers the first time she saw me at the Emerge. Because uh, her her whole perspective was movies, right? Burns, like Ladder 49, Backdraft, all these fire movies that we, you know, always watched. Um, but what the face is going to look like. And thankfully, my face piece was still intact. I didn't lose my... Uh, face piece, and I, I didn't appear that it had any burn injuries to my uh, respiratory. So it was very fortunate. Interested to hear what, how your mindset has changed since 2007 towards the fire service, towards mental health, towards everything, everything to do with this incident. Yeah. Well, it's, it was a full 360 boy. I never even heard the terms mental health really. You know, you heard of the stigma you see the people on the street that we serve or that we respond to. And you hear about the people suffering and you hear about this new term now, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And you're like, you mean I'm going to get this? And it's part of the job and you're expected, like you just push through and that's, you know, suck it up and go have a drink with a boy and that's it, right? Or you mitigate yourself. And that's the things that you heard. That's what you only heard about it. Until I was introduced to more people and like that, thankfully Dr. Davis and all of a sudden the word peer support started to be introduced as well as the burning community first. And I was so thankful for that because we, um, in the, the September after in, the, in 2007, after that incident, 
we were able to go to the World Burn Survivor Conference in Vancouver, was in Canada, and it's uh, sponsored through the Phoenix Society, which is a, a society for burn survivors. And I had never heard the term burn survivor before. All I had heard of was burn victims. You know, I was, I basically, I was a victim. I felt like a victim. I, I had that self-pity. I had that shame of my scars where some farmers, oh, now you got a real fire for a tattoo. I'm like, screw that. Like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I took offense to it. I didn't like that. Um, I didn't have a lot of pride in my scars as so many bird survivors do. So I had to really learn. I was there, but I, when I went to this with Joanna, we went to all the sessions, but I went there as a rescuer. I wasn't going there as a survivor yet. And I kept hearing this term and I'm like, no, it's not me. It doesn't, I don't feel it. I was really badly in the survivor guilt, um, the loss, the, the failure of not being able to get save Harold. Um, and it was, uh, that identity, like I mentioned, like I didn't really have, I didn't feel like a fireman. I didn't feel like I was a burn survivor. Now, but down all of a sudden I was blending into two. I was becoming a fire, fire burn survivor, which is pretty, pretty, uh, amazing experience. I, I was introduced to the right people at the right time. It seems this whole journey that I've been on, you know, I was introduced to this amazing man, Oscar Barrera. He's a, he was, he's retired now. He was a captain in Stockton, California, almost a, like another incident. He lost two firefighters, was burn injured, survived, made it back on the job. And it's like, everything was in sync. Like, and he was mentoring me. Like without me even knowing the term or understanding what that, what he was doing, he was giving me the perspective of understanding of what I was feeling and validated it, which I, I hadn't had because the two of us that were burn injured at our incident, we were together at the beginning, but all of a sudden our, our healing path was, they're very different. I was young. I had young kids. He was older. Um, all these different things about the surgeries that we, we just sort of went off in different ways. But thankfully, uh, meeting Oscar gave me this path of understanding and of self. His wife was also a mentor and a peer support for Joanna and, and some of the other wives that we started getting involved with. And that all those things that we felt were normal. And that's one of the things that Dr. Davis said. I would describe the feelings and the fear and the, uh, especially the weakness. Because uh, you're supposed to be a rescuer, strong and and... When something goes wrong, they call us. I didn't quite have that yet. And so he said, no, that's normal. It's okay what you're feeling. It's, it's, you're, you're not weak. And fast forward years later, I remember talking with Duncan Shields about it. He would say the phrase of that we were wounded, or that we were helpless in some points, but struggling struggling but strong and i that term when he said it is like my mantra like struggling but strong right it doesn't mean you're you're failing it doesn't mean you're weak um reminding me of being human i'm just gonna just gonna say that yeah but it's human that's all in that but in those moments for sure um the being human part wasn't there yet like i didn't have that vocabulary or even mindset the mindset of where i am now I often wonder what that young man would be like now if this incident ever happened. And I would never want to go through that because my wife reminds me, no, she never wants that to happen again. 
right? But I think, oh no, we can do it. And I'm like, yeah, we can do it. But she says, no, I never want that to happen again. And uh, I often wonder what would I be like without this? What kind of man would, what, what type of men would my young boys be? What would we have had our third child? Because all these things changed our life. But it wasn't because of the incident. It's because of our response to it. We didn't let, like Joanna thankfully didn't give up on our marriage. Like she said many times, like God said, I can't, like, how do I do this? Right. It was so new to us. But thankfully we held on to each other because that's, she's this one driving force in my life that I don't want to let down. You know, like I love our job. I love the fire service. I love the people I work with on the job, like being able to serve my crew and the people I get to teach. I love it, but it's her. And, and I don't know if we celebrate our spouses enough as firefighters. Yeah. Um, I think we need more. I think we need to bring them in more. I need, we need to have those breakfasts with our kids, um, to show them who do we work for. It's not just the citizens, but the reason I train and, and read and study and go to the gym is so I get home, you know, so I get home to them, you know. Well, I know this has been a, a powerful, powerful episode and, uh, I really acknowledge your courage to, to relive this, um, for the benefit of others to learn from you. Uh, I think that's, it's incredible. So I just wanted to express that. Is there some golden nugget you'd like our listeners to be left with today? Cause, uh, I'm looking at the time and I want to be respectful of your time. Well, so. <laughs> the. The one thing I, I really hope people can get a takeaway that it wasn't me. It was the, a village that built this man that I've, I've become and I'm not done yet. Like I am, uh, I drive my wife crazy cause I am all about the dream. Like I dream about this, I take us everywhere direction as many people say, but, um, I believe in potential and I believe that every person has that within them, but an incident doesn't have to drive you, um, to a negative. Um, I, I really do believe that Joanne and I are able to uh, take this trauma and feel the potential that we all have within us and not let this dictate that it has to be devastating. It was, it, it's, it, I feel it every day, but it doesn't have to ruin my day. It could make me appreciate of where I am, my wife that I have, my, my beautiful children to be able to do what we do. Um, but one of those things is uh, the acknowledgement of the people that were in our lives. But because of this incident, transformed into, I, I, I think it's the dream. Like I have a dream life. And even though we lost two amazing people, like of what they missed of their, their wives, like they didn't get to go home. They didn't get to become grandfathers. They didn't get to walk their kids down the aisle. All those things. I want to try to live for them. Um, Beautiful. I can't live for, like, I can't give them that to their families, but I can represent the values that we need to, for being a good man on the job. Like I love what Duncan and Dave and Steve and on with blueprint for, um, raising young men. Like we need, like as a father, I can't be a mother. Um, but no matter what, no matter what people say, I'm not a mother, but, but I can be a good dad. I can be a good man. And if that's one thing I can take away from this, 
is that I learned I needed to be a better man uh, because there's people coming behind us that need need that. Not just my um, my crews, but my my little boys. I know men; they're 19 and 21, and I don't believe in excuses. And it's hard on them sometimes when I use this as uh, everything is is under your control. It's about what you choose as priorities. And I hope people can see that you do have a choice. Um, I've often had people say to us, um, you know, if you would have chose to leave the job or, you know, have addiction or alcohol and drugs, you know, it, it's pretty understanding like what you went through. I, and I, I disagreed with them. I disagreed with the excuse that you can devastate your career and not honor the fact that you can move in the right direction. Um, because I learned that at Loon Lake, having the gift of Steve Farida as a, a brother and friend um, that introduced me to this concept in the, that fall. I remember the fall before I went, he said, hey, here's this thing we're trying. We're going to try this beta test. And I said, well, how can I be involved? Or again, help. How can I bring it back? How can I, not realizing that after a bad call, I came home and I heard my little boy say to Joanna, is dad okay? And I heard that and I stayed in my room and I phoned Steve. And I said, Steve, I, I need, can I go? Can I go to this? And he said, yeah, you know, Steve, fucking right. Sorry. Got <laughs> Yes. You know, Steve. Um, he got me there and even though it was, it was on the 10th year anniversary, even though 10 years, everyone's like, holy, everything's fine. You're doing this, you're doing that, all these things, right? Proactive and teaching and learning and peer support. I, I was still learning and Loon Lake gave me, um, such a unique experience, um, of forgiveness for myself. And, uh, I came home, me, nice. you know, so it was beautiful. So I hope, I hope, uh, people don't need, have to go like out of, uh, when they're in the red, but I hope people experience something wonderful, like Lone Lake and expand it. And it is a, an amazing place that Duncan Shields and Dave Cool and the BCPFSA and the work that Steve Freena does, they're saving lives and I am so Thankful they've helped five Winnipeg firefighters. Um, they took on that. Uh, Gord Ditchburn, um, his commitment to the program saved many our own members that we didn't have. We didn't have the funding. We didn't have the programming. They did, and I love them for that. So, but that, if that's the nugget there, that'd be yep. a it's a good nugget of of a building a network because yep. in, by circling the wagons, you may not have the right structure you may not have the right strategy someone outside the box made me and don't be afraid to reach out outside your normal and don't be afraid to get help and so we were given that gift you know so well the, the past hour and a bit of our conversation you've you've mentioned dozens of people that have supported you so oh. you're just showing it in your story oh. how much those connections impacted you and helped you recover right so well, it's like peer support wise, mental health wise, training wise, like uh, there's, you should, 
I wish I could uh, fill the hour with just the people that were involved here, like Andy Ruiz down in LA City, or like there's so many people, like Charlie Shive in DC. Like the things we get to do now. Um, everyone says, "Oh, you're so busy," but I'm like, "No, I don't feel busy. I, I'm just I'm filling a cup full of amazing experiences." And we like with a burn survivor firefighter retreat we host down in Colorado and. No work, man. It's yeah. it's just amazing. Like my good friend Louis Navarez, one of the only firefighters in North America that returned with a prosthetic arm, and one of one of the people that I he's one of my best friends. You know, all these people, yeah. this network that we have in the fire service is so broad and and varied, and um, I'm so proud of. I'm really proud of what people are doing out there, and and it's not just me. It's it's there's so many people, and I'm so glad that you reached out and. I got to listen to those people that you are interviewing because it takes such courage to use this terminology, use this to yeah. be vulnerable, right? 100%. And uh, I'm so thankful my wife puts up with it. <laughs> so do me a favor. As soon as we finish this episode, go hug your wife. Yeah. I and, have, uh, I'll, I'll make your dinner. Yes. <laughs> and, and give her a hug from me for all, oh, all she, uh, yeah, everything she's done for, for you. So. Well, and, and the fire service, cause she actually speaks and she, she tells the truth. Um, it's not this rainbows and unicorns running around our house. It's, it's real, you know? So thankfully we have that realism and she has that patience with me and I'm learning the same. I'm still learning. Yep. Wish I was, I I wish I was perfecting, but uh, yeah, I'm still learning. Yep. Good for you. Yeah. Well, Lionel, it's been a pleasure. I think it might require part two. Uh, as a podcast, because uh, I think I had lots more to uh, to ask you, but it was such a such an amazing story and experience that you shared with us today. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in part two, I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show yeah. for any any time. But, yeah. yeah, I appreciate the conversation. It was sort of one sided, so I'd love oh, no, to hear no, more no, from you. No. Oh, well, be... this is a podcast. This is for you. So I just wanted to highlight your story and share your message and share some nuggets with our listeners on, on that recovery process and how that, how that went for, for you. Cause every firefighter in every community in North America could experience this today, tomorrow, next week. Yeah. Um, so whatever lessons we can learn from those tragedies in the past, that is what progresses us forward in the, in the cu- culture yeah, of the fire service. Definitely yeah. agree. And, and definitely if part two, I'll bring up some of those things that, um, is going to change. It, yep. uh, what what's happening in the fire service there's some real radical change and i think uh, so many of us need to band together and create that positive change that and and really keep the fire service um going moving forward i yes. think there's a lot of conversations of that where we are and they feel it's going into a negative i disagree i think I we just need to work harder yep. so i, I think agree. we can do it so beautiful well, everyone, I uh, hope you enjoyed this uh, great talk with Lionel and his uh, his story of recovery. And uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you, actually, the, the term survivor. To me, it's always been a maybe a, not a trauma aware word. Do you does that resonate with you or is survivor the proper term just for people listening that might help benefit them? Yeah. So then how it was explained to me when I basically went to these conferences uh, for uh, burn survivors. Um, they explained to me in a really good way because the week before my fire where I was injured, we had pulled a lady out of a house and 
we called her a burn victim. She, we got a victim. We got a burn victim. She was in the room next to me mm. that week when I was in. Wow. And I saw that. I was like, and then everyone started talking about this term burn survivor. And they explained to me as the fact that if you don't make it, you're a burn victim. You're a victim. That means you don't make it. And, but survivor means you're still thriving. You're still moving forward. You're still, you know, alive. But I didn't, it didn't resonate for some time. Until I started to feel it. Like it's not a, a label that you can just be given. I think it's something you have to learn and understand. Almost like I took it as I'd earn it. Because and that's I an appropriate label though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I yeah. really didn't, I really didn't feel it. Right. Because I, I felt the shame and the guilt. Uh, so, yeah. Well, that's but what I, I was kind of thinking was the survivor guilt. Yeah. Does that correlate with burn survivor? And is it kind of the same, same? So I was wondering if that is the right terminology to use when talking with people like this. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. And, and yeah. but even just some trauma, like people, mm -hmm. trauma survivor, right? They may see something, they're in a car accident and they're a trauma survivor yeah. and they see the person beside them, right? Yeah. All those factors and a survivor, like Lawrence Gonzalez, his book, Surviving Survival, one of my favorites yes. after deep survival, mm -hmm. those two and how we got to work with Lawrence. So they've been deep dive into that next time. Oh, I'd love to. I yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. man. And he answers my emails or phone calls and we still chat. So oh, it gets awesome. To, like, you have to make an introduction. Oh, <laughs> you would love it. Like oh, yes. Yes. Like what a mind, like what a mind, how he, his way of writing and his style and his grace that he gives. Yeah. Like it's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. pretty good. Awesome. So. Brother, it's been a, it's been an honor. And um, I just want to make sure that I kind of say this to you, that you are living the life and a role model for your kids. Well, I wish I could be better buddies. I know, I but I, I, I just yeah, want to I honor that. It. I Thank want you. to honor that. Yeah. I still chase the fact of being, I want to be like my dad. So I like, I got that picture up on my fridge. Yep. That's the man I, I chase. I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I sure wish I could. Cause I want them to experience the love of, of my father and, and then of what we're trying to do to raise these young men. And I, I translate it right. I take it right to work. Like you're a dad at work and I try to, I can want to take care of them. You, you can't mother them because they're, you're the father. And yeah. so that's where, how do you do that with, you know, still having that relationship, you know? So I, I try to understand, <laughs> I, you know, so yes. but thank you for, I appreciate that. You I appreciate it. All right, brother. And uh, everyone who's listening, hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for tuning in to Beneath the Helmet. We hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters' health and wellness. Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well.